you're now in a, a new, sort of a new section. The last four Psalms have been about David running from King Saul. And Psalm 60 uh, takes place after King Saul dies. He dies in battle at the hands of the Philistines, and now David has ascended to the throne, and he has to clean up all the mess. Uh, under King Saul, Israel went on a steep decline. Uh, morally, uh, stopped keeping the law. Uh, this is what the people wanted. The people wanted King Saul. They said, we want a king. And God said, well, I'm your king. Now, we want a king like the other nations. One that will go to war and protect us and form alliances. and So God gave them what they wanted. And this man made a big mess of things. And now David has ascended the throne and he uh, must clean up the mess. Uh, the nation's weakened. It's weakened militarily. It's weakened morally. And so here's David. He's going to have to fight the battles and clean up the mess that King Saul made. So if you look at the superscription, it says this. This is right over top of Psalm 60. We see this is a song. This is written to, these are instructions to, the chief musician. This would be a choir master. Somebody who leads the orchestra, leads the choir in the tabernacle. And uh, he's told to set these words to Lily of the Testimony. That's the name of the tune. It was a popular tune, just like we have tunes that everybody knows, and you can put words to those tunes, different words to those tunes, and we do that all the time. And so he says, I want this set to the tune of Lily of the Testimony. And we don't exactly know what that means, but there's another psalm that is, I think it's Psalm 45, that is set to that same tune. So this is a popular thing. You know, when John Wesley, back in the 1730s, 1740s, preached a message, he required that his brother, Charles Wesley, write a song that corresponded to his sermon. So for every sermon John Wesley preached, Charles Wesley had to write a song on the same thing. Now, he didn't have to write the tune, what he did was that he took a popular barroom tune that everybody in society knew and he put the Christian words to that tune. So all the secular people, all the lost people, when they heard the tune, they said, Oh, I know that song! And they were attracted to it and then they heard these new words and somebody said that Charles Wesley did more for evangelism than John Wesley, the founder of the Methodist Church. So... What David says, let's take this popular barroom tune uh, called Lily of the Testimony, and uh, probably an Irish tune, sounds like something like that, and put these words to that tune. Okay? Now, it's called a miktam, which simply means a, a, a tune that is to be low, uh, reflective. Uh, actually, literally, it means to murmur. So there are parts of this song where evidently the, the music gets lower and you sort of murmur the words uh, so the people can reflect on it. And then it says, tells us it's by David. He writes it. And then it gives us the historical context for the words. 
It took this, the words here are based on events that took place when he, that's David, fought against Mesopotamia and Syria of Zobah, and Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. So that's the historical context. So if you want to know what this is about, guess what you have to do? You have to go out and find this event in the scriptures. And unfortunately, there is a mention of it back in 2 Samuel. So I want you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8. And as we do often in these Psalms, we'll look at the historical context. And then, once we discover that, then the words of the Psalms sort of fall into place and they all make sense. It's great when we have a superscription that gives us this background. Okay, so find 2 Samuel and chapter 8. And I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'm just going to read certain portions of verses and then explain the chapter to you. We'll look at verse 1. 2 Samuel 8, 1. After this, it came to pass that David attacked the Philistine. That was the battle that cost... Uh, these were the people that, that killed King Saul. So now David's going to go and he's going to fight the Philistines. He subdued them. And then David took Methe, Ammah, from the hand of the Philistines. And then he defeated Moab, forcing them to the ground. And you should just remember some of these names because you'll see them listed in the Psalms. He took Moab, forcing them to the ground. He measured them off with a line. Now you see that word measured? I want you to remember that word. <clears throat> remember the word measured. So what word are you supposed to remember? Measured. measured. Okay, so just remember that word measured. You have a good memory so far. <laughs> and then it says he measured them off with a line. And with two lines he measured off those to be put to death. And with one full line those to be kept alive. So the Moabites became David's servants and brought tribute. It's basically, they started paying taxes to him. David also defeated Hadad-Ezar, the son of Rahab, Rahab, son of Zobah, which we saw in this superscription, as he went to recover his territory at the river Euphrates. Now the rest of this section basically tells about these different battles and people that David fights and Defeats, And I'm not going to read all of that, but you can look down at uh, verse, uh, verse 11. King David also dedicated these to the Lord, these places that he won, this, the prey or that he, and spoils that he won, and the lands that he conquered, along with the silver and gold that he dedicated from all the nations, to all these different places which he had subdued, from Syria to Moab, from the people of Ammon, from the Philistines, from Amalek, from the spoil of Hadad, Ezar, son of Rehob, son of Jobah. And David made himself a name when he returned from killing 18,000 Syrians, look at that, in the Valley of Salt. See that? Valley of Salt. Now, in the superscription, it said, Joab fought in the Valley of Salt. Here it says, it's David that fights in the Valley of Salt. It also says, he also put garrisons in Edom throughout all Edom. He put garrisons in all the Edomites 
became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel. And David administered just judgment and justice to all his people. So there is the background. Now there's a parallel passage that says very similar things. And I want you to turn over to 1 Chronicles chapter 8. Okay? And here I'm not going to read as much, but 1 Chronicles 18 rather. And I want to show you that this is how the chronicle, the chronicler describes the situation. Same story. One written by Samuel, another written by the writer of Chronicles. Telling the same story. First Chronicles chapter 18 and verse 1. First Chronicles 18 and verse 1. And it came to pass that David attacked the Philistines. He subdued and he took Gath and then the towns uh, from the hands of the Philistines. He then defeated the Mo Moab and the Moabites became David's servants, and he brought tribute, and David defeated Hadad-Ezar, king of Zobah, and so on and so forth. And you see, that's exactly the same thing that it said over in that other passage. And then look over at verse 12. Moreover, Abishai, the son of Zerubah, killed 18,000 Edomites, in the valley of Saul. Now wait a second. The superscription said Joab killed people in Saul. The other one says David, and now this, we see another person kills the people in Saul. And here it says 18,000, and in the superscription it says only 12,000 were killed in the valley of Saul. That makes things very interesting, doesn't it? Look at verse 13. He put garrisons in Edom, and all the Edomites became David's servants, and the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all of Israel and administered judgment and justice to all of his people. Now we have Joab. Finally, Joab shows up on the scene. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. Joab, the son of Zariah, was over the army. So now what we see from this background is that there is a hierarchy of power. You have David, who's the king. You have Joab, who is the chief of all the armies. He's like the secretary of defense. And then you have Abishai, who is like a general in the army. And they're all involved in this battle in the valley of salt. So when you go back to Psalm 60, and what's the word that you were supposed to remember? Anybody know? Measured. Measured. Okay, glad you remember that. So you have a hierarchy. So in Psalm 60 it says, Joab returned and killed 12,000 Edomites in the valley of salt. So uh, probably what it's describing is uh, maybe two battles and took place in the same valley with one 18,000. Uh, David's general Abishai goes out and kills 18,000. And then Joab returns and kills another 12,000. Or the 12,000 comes under the banner of the larger number of 18,000. We're just not sure on that. Uh, some people say it's a copy error. And what does that mean, a copy error? Well, we know the Bible's inspired, so the inspired writer, Samuel and the chronicler writes 
18,000. That's the original manuscripts of the Bible, which are inerrant. And then there comes a time, years later, uh, when uh, they decide to start copying the scriptures. So this person can have a copy, and that person can have a copy, and that person can have a copy, and the copyist makes a mistake. You know we have a lot of mistakes in our English Bibles? Because this isn't the Bible that's inspired, is it? This one came out from Thomas Nelson. You think they made some mistakes maybe when they printed it? Of course they did. You think people who copied the scriptures for a second time and a third time and a twentieth time made mistakes? It's possible that they did. So it's not that the scriptures has mistakes, but it's possible that the copyist made a mistake. And this is what we talk about in, in uh, hermeneutics classes and things like that, trying to explain these things. But anyway, that's not important. The bottom line is that's the background. So you have the background. Okay, now I'm going to give you the outline of Psalm 60. Here's how we're going to do it. Verses 1 through 5, I'm going to call that the first section of the psalm. And I'm going to title that David's Prayer Assessment. David's Prayer Assessment. Here's where he assesses the situation that faces the nation of Israel. And he does it in a prayer. Okay? Then verses 6 through 8, that's the second section of the psalm. I'm going to call that God's Oracle. That's where God speaks directly. And he probably speaks through a prophet. To, to David or through Samuel or one of the prophets. And then the last section, 9 through 12, we have David's declaration of faith. And this is where David says unequivocally that he trusts the Lord. So, you ready? Let's look at verse 1. David's assessment of the situation. Okay. So, what we're going to discover in verses 1 through 5 is that Israel is in trouble. Okay? And uh, David's going to mention several negative things that are going on in this nation several negative things, and he's going to mention one positive thing. Okay, so let's look at the negatives. Let's start at verse 1. Negative number 1. He says, Oh God, this is a prayer, but this is a prayer assessment. Oh God, you have cast us off. Just like last night you took off your garments that were dirty, that were soiled, and you threw them into the dirty clothes. If you went out in your garden, you were cutting your grass, you had soiled garments, and you just said, I don't want to wear these anymore, and you just cast them off. And that's what God has done to the nation of Israel. Why has God cast them off? Notice he says, you have cast us off. It's because King Saul was disobedient to God, and the nation followed King Saul. King Saul made alliances with other nations. He did things by the arm of the flesh. He did not keep the covenant that God made with Israel. And so God has cast the nation off. That's negative number one. Negative number two in verse one. You've broken us down. Now when something's broken down, it's not functioning right. You have to get it fixed. Now notice... He is attributing these problems in his nation to God. He says, God, you've broken us down. You've brought us to our knees. We were one time, you know, great people, but, you know, we, we can't even uh, uh, fix any problems in our nation. We, we lose battles on the battlefield. <coughs> and then he says a third thing. You have been displeased. Uh, this may be a reason why God has broken them down. He's... Uh, He's, he's angry. It's a good word. 
some translations may say you are angry. God is angry at the nation because they've not kept their covenant, their promises to God. So then what happens is at the end of verse 1, David makes his first request. We're going to see throughout this psalm, he makes four requests of God. So this is going to be request number one. Look what it is. Oh, restore us again. We're broken. Uh, fix us. We are wayward. We're off the right path. Uh, bring us back again. Uh, Don mentioned Psalm 1. Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. Because what happens if you do? Psalm 1 talks about that. And so God's not pleased with the nation. And so David's first request is restore us again. Get us back on the right path. Okay, now, look at the next name. Verse 2. You have made the earth tremble. The earth there could either be referring to Israel... Uh, we're shaking in our boots, or it could mean the earth below our feet. <laughs> it could be describing uh, the sounds of war, where the earth shakes when there are battlements and things of this nature, rumbling of war, but things are trembling. Look what he says, the next negative. You've broken it. You've broken it. Uh, the nation is broken. This time... He said in verse 1, you've broken us. In verse 2, you've broken the earth. Uh, it's de describing something like an earthquake that's taking place. It could be that natural disasters are even happening in Israel that were, weren't happening a decade before or uh, 40 years before. Does that sound familiar? Crazy things of nature and the earth shakes and things are broken down. And he attributes all this to God. Okay? So then what we have is his second request. And here's his request. Heal the breaches. Heal the cracks. Uh, the nation, for it is shaking. If this is talking about the nation, the nation is, is shaking. Uh, the nation is broken. Uh, you need to heal this. What happens when you have something that's cracked? Uh, and this is his second request. What was his first request, by the way? Restore, because we're wayward, we're disobedient. The second request is heal. Well, you heal something because it's sick. So we have a sick nation. And so the nation's been shaken, it's falling to pieces, it's teetering like the Twin Towers, and it's about to collapse. And so he asked God to heal it before the enemy, because... Saul has just lost the battle to the Philistines. And now, here is the nation of Israel, and it's just teetering, ready to fall over. And he asked God to step in and heal the nation before the enemies bring the nation down and totally destroy it. Just, the whole nation collapses. So that's what you have happening. This is the situation David finds himself in when he becomes king, because of what happened with now, we get the next negative. This is the fifth or sixth negative in verse 3. Look at this. You have shown your people hard things. The nation is going through very hard times. It's going through hard times economically. It's going through hard times morally. It's going through hard times militarily. 
and they had seen hard times, and God has shown them these hard times. He's allowed it to happen. Next negative in verse 3. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. It's like the nation is in a drunken stupor and it can't think straight. Now, I know most of you have never been drunk. I didn't hear any laughs. Well, there's a few people who have been. But I will admit that I have been drunk. When I was in college, I used to drink. And I have gotten into drunken stupors. And I could remember certain things that sort of happened the night before. But I couldn't remember everything. And I certainly would have been in no situation at that time, in that state of confusion, ever to make a correct decision. Especially for a nation. And here, it's like the nation has been drinking, probably drinking in its pride that they are special people, and uh, God has made them drink the wine of confusion, and they can't even think straight to get out of all these problems that are happening. Uh, their leaders can't make correct decisions. And David says that has been the condition of this nation when, when he takes the throne. So now he has a positive. So those are all the negatives. Now he gives us one positive, And this is a very important positive. And this is, I believe the turning point of the psalm. This is what I'm going to call the pivot point of the psalm. He says, positively, you have given a banner to those who fear you. There is a group within the nation, a remnant of people within the nation that fear God. They haven't gone the way of the rest of the nation. And guess what God has given them? He's given them a banner. He's given them a standard. Look, when you're in battle, and you're in trouble, and you're losing the battle, the one thing that really looks good, when you look over the hillside, and here comes a group, a troop of soldiers, and they're waving the banner. Here comes the cavalry. I mean, this is, the battle's going to be changed. You see, a banner speaks of hope. So God has given a banner to a group of people who fear him. It means reinforcements are on the way. It's a very interesting concept here. And I pondered this whole thing for a long time. You've given a banner to those, not the whole nation, but to those who fear you. For what purpose? Now look at this. That it may be displayed. You see that? Guess what we're to do with that banner? Or to display it. <laughs> that it may be displayed because of the truth. There's a truth that must be displayed by those who fear God, the remnant. And the truth of the matter is this. When God formed the nation of Israel, He established an agreement or a contract or a covenant with them. And He said this. If you will obey My commandments and obey Me, do what I tell you to do. I will protect you and take care of you. And all you have to do is obey the covenant. Keep your side and I keep my side. That is what the nation has not done. But now, guess what? God has given the faithful a banner, a hope, a standard. A standard of truth. And that standard of truth must be displayed. 
And this is what David's going to do. He's going to take God and his covenant word, and he's going to say, God, I'm going to trust you to take care of us and get us out of this mess. I'm going to be faithful to my end of the bargain. I'm going to bring the nation back, and we're going to be faithful to you. And we know that you will then rescue us. This banner speaks of hope. So David gets a sense here that he's going to have the victory. Now, the next word in verse 4 is, look, say a lot, which means now you have that choir just humming, murmuring, the orchestra plays low, and and there's just a pause. No more words spoken, and it just allows the words and the lessons to sink in for the nation at this time. So the nation who hears this realizes, and this was written after the battle probably took place, some later, but it allows the nation to think back over the past few years and what it was like under King Saul when they were not obedient <coughs> to the covenant of God and all these bad things happened and God allowed it to happen. And then David comes along and he raises the banner of truth because he fears God and keeps the covenant and he knows that a victory is going to come. Now that's the truth that we need to think upon. And then he gives a second purpose there at the beginning of verse 5. talks about the banner of truth. He's giving you a banner, number one, that you may display it. And then look at number two, verse 5. That your beloved, that's God's beloved, that would be the nation of Israel, may be delivered. You see that? The banner is given that number one, it may be displayed. And number two, that God's beloved, his wife, the nation of Israel, may be delivered. So this becomes the whole turning point, I think, for the psalm. So now we have David's next plea. His next request. This would be his third request. First request, verse 1, restore us. Second request, in verse 2, heal us. Third request, at the end of verse 5, save with your right hand and hear me. Save with your right hand and hear me. Someone pointed out it's a very interesting order in which it is. It doesn't say, hear me, hear my prayer, and then save. It says what? Save and then hear me. He just asked God just to, to take David on faith. You know, just save us and, then, and hear my prayer. So, uh, he asked God, and that word save would mean rescue, okay, deliver us. So that is his third request. Okay? So that's verses 1 through 5. That's David's prayerful assessment of the situation. They're in problems, but he knows that God's going to come through because David is going to raise the banner of truth. He's going to be faithful to the covenant. Now we have God's oracle. Okay? Verses 6 through 8. God has spoken in his holiness. And what does he say? Here's what he says. I will rejoice. <laughs> hey, that's pretty good. A little different than verse 1 when he said he was displeased. God says, I will rejoice. Some translations say, I will triumph. There will be a rejoiceful triumph over the, the enemy. Look at the second thing God said. I will divide Shechem. Shechem was the 
original capital of or capital of early Israel. And God says, I will divide Shechem. That means I'm going to divide it up into parcels. Uh, when Israel went into the promised land, he divided the land into lots. He said, this tribe gets this land, this tribe gets that land. And God is now going to say, because what's happened is the enemy has taken over a lot of the property. And God says, look, uh, we're going to win this thing and I'm going to then divide Shechem. Okay. And then he says, and measure out the valley of Sukkoth, which is on the other side of the Jordan River. What's the word there? Measure. See, that's how we know that it goes back. It's one of the reasons we know that it goes back. So he's going to divide, take a measuring stick, and say, okay, this land is yours, this land is yours, amongst the Jewish people. It's going to distribute the land. Okay? And then it goes on to say, Gilead is mine. That's God's property. He's going to measure out Gilead. Manasseh, that's another tribe, it's mine. Manasseh is going to get its property back. Ephraim is the helmet of my head. That was a, the outer borders regions of the promised land. Judah is my lawgiver. And Judah will be, is the tribe uh, from which the lawgiver or the ruler was going to come out of Judah. And it was uh, the city of Judah was going to become the new capital of Israel. So all this is homeland material. God is going to take the homeland, he's going to take Israel the nation, and he's going to give them the land to the people again. They're going to repossess the land, basically what it says. What about enemy territory? Well, look at verse 8. Moab, that's one of the enemies that we saw back there. Moab is my what? Washpot. Now, washpot can mean... It's not a clean thing, whatever it is. It could be the twilight, it's a latrine. It could mean, I'm going to treat you know, Moab like a latrine. Uh, more likely it means the, the pot that you washed your dirty feet in. And all the gunk that was on your feet you know, went into this pot that became filthy water. And so uh, he says, well, Moab will be my wash pot. And uh, oftentimes, you know, they had slaves and servants who washed people's feet. Look at it. Over Edom, it's another enemy, I will cast my shoe. Now, that could mean a couple things. It could mean throw your shoe at a person. Like, remember that guy, I forget where it was, threw a shoe at George Bush? Remember that? <laughs> Throwing a shoe in the Middle East is a sign of contempt. Remember the statue of Saddam when it came down and people got the shoes and started hitting it? It was a sign of contempt. Or it could simply mean, I will stomp on the neck of that enemy nation, which could mean I will tread or I will defeat the enemy. Either way, you can see how he treats Gilead, how he treats Edom. Edom is uh, in Moab. Edom is like a dirty old wash pot. I have no value for him, you know. Uh, I'll cast my shoe at Moab or, or Edom. No, look. Philistia? What about that? He gives instructions to the nation of Israel. He says, here's what I want you to do. Shout in triumph because of what? Me. You're going to defeat them, but it's all going to be because of me. So we have these descriptions here of the defeat of these countries. Now, we know that it was David 
Abishai and Joab and all their armies that went out and fought the wars, but God says the victories were because of him. It's God and man, in this sense, working together. So there is God's oracle, his prophecy that he's giving through either Samuel or David or whoever. And now in verses 9 through 12, we have David's faith declared. And here's what he says. Okay, he says, seeing rallying the troops. Who will bring me the strong city? That's the for, means that's a fortified city. Who will bring me the strong city? Who will bring me to Edom? Now, Edom is modern-day Petra. Some of you have been on the trip to Petra. At the entrance to Petra is, you know, this narrow gorge that goes on for about, you know, two miles. And uh, you could not penetrate Petra. You couldn't penetrate Edom. It was a fortified city with high walls. You would get bottlenecked, and you couldn't get more than two soldiers, you know, side by side if you tried to get into that city. Edom could not be defeated. Now, today, Petra could be defeated. You drop a bomb on it, couldn't you? They didn't have bombs in those days. You couldn't attack it from the top. And so it was, you couldn't penetrate it. And David said, well, who's, who's going to bring me Edom? How are we going to defeat that fortified city? He asked this question. Uh, it's interesting what he says. He says, look at verse 10. Is it not you, O God? And the answer is what? Yes, he's the one. But watch how he, what he says about God. Is it not you, O God, who what? Cast us off. And you, who did not go out with our armies. Yes. The God who was angry, the God who left them to, on their own, the God who abandoned them, the God who was displeased with them, is now the God who will go with them and will allow them to penetrate Edom and defeat that nation. Very interesting, isn't it? How you can sort of see this thing come together. Now, I want you to know that what we're doing is just a Bible study, right? This is a Sunday school class. This isn't a sermon. Okay. This is just a Bible study. That's why I can spend the time doing this. Now, watch. <coughs> David's fourth request. Give us help from trouble. For the help of man is what? Useless. See, Saul depended upon alliances to win these battles. David realizes that that is useless, and his fourth request is help. So, request number one, restore. Request number two, heal. Request number three, save, rescue. And request number four, in verse 11, is help. Help indicates a partnership. It's not you do it all. It's what? Help. It's the divine and it's the hum human working together in this situation. And then he says this. Through God, we, see that? We will do valiantly. It means we are going to win the victory. For it is he who shall tread out our enemies. Notice. Verse 12, part 1, we. Verse 12, part 2, he. 
we and he. So, because he will look, tread, see there's your foot going on the enemy's neck, he will basically tread out our enemies, he will win the victory. So, what we have here, therefore, in Psalm 60 is a switch going on, and David, now keeping the covenant with God, gets on God's good side, and God and man work together here for the victory. Now, there is a mistake that we need to be aware of, and that is to uh, equate America with Israel. Okay? We just can't take this passage here and equate it, equate it to our country. Okay? Um, the people of God live in a lot of countries. Would you agree with that? The church exists in all kinds of countries. This is more a message to the church, what to do when you are, for us anyway, when you are in a predicament. So the church, the people of God, uh, can exist in whatever political situation we find ourselves. We can be in Babylon, we can exist. We can be in Rome, like the early believers were, and they can exist. You can be in uh, China, and the church will survive in that situation. If you keep God's covenant, he will allow you to survive. You can be in America or whatever the situation is. The church is triumphant if it trusts God. Uh, and it doesn't do what Israel did under King Saul, which was to use human tactics, the tactics of the world, to bring about victory in their situation. You cannot trust the arm of the flesh. And so what he's saying is that he is going to trust God. Now the church, we are under a new covenant with God. We've entered into a covenant and we have an agreement. To the extent that we are faithful to the agreement, to that extent we will have victory. Faith is the victory that overcometh the world. And so this is a very interesting psalm which talks about covenant faithfulness and how God stands for us. And when he does that, who can be against us. Next week we'll pick up on Psalm 61. Lord, we thank you for this passage of Scripture which speaks to us. Help us to realize, Lord, that uh, we as believers need to trust you, take you at your word, display the banner of truth, and then whatever situation we're in, you will come through and you will deliver us. Lord, help us to take this message with us and may this message build our faith and our hope. In Jesus' name.